Uh, before we begin our study, I just want to refresh you that we, um, we've been going through the book of Isaiah. Last week we saw Isaiah chapter 6, which was the vision itself in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. From Uzziah then came Jotham. Uh, Jotham was Uzziah's son. You remember Uzziah got leprosy in the last portion of his reign, so Jotham was a co-regent with his father. They were both good kings. They compromised a little bit. Jotham compromised more than Uzziah did. Uzziah compromised, but Jotham compromised more than Uzziah did. But by the time Ahaz comes along, who's the son of Jotham, whose grandpa is Uzziah, um, Ahaz is really struggling. And uh, so this, this now goes from chapter 6 and picks up at 7 in the prophetic word that God gave to Isaiah. And God is now speaking to this grandson of Uzziah, which is Ahaz. Ahaz is in a lot of trouble. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel has joined together with Syria, and they're coming to invade the southern kingdom of Judah. And they're approaching Jerusalem. They're going to tear down the wall. They're going to invade the nation. Ahaz is, is worried. He sees this uh, imposing force bearing down on them. He tries to align with the Assyrians who are worshipers of Molech, who is this god that we'll see momentarily. And Ahaz was so trying to appease the Assyrians to side with him that he desecrated the places of worship and the temples throughout Israel. He started to put up images of Molech, and he actually sacrificed two of his own children uh, to the god of Molech. And um, he actually shut down temple worship, and he went off the deep end just, just to appease Assyria and somehow try to come up with some sort of, of political strategy to stave off the Syrians and the, the northern kingdom from attacking Jerusalem. And it's at this moment that God speaks to Ahaz uh, through the prophet Isaiah. And here's the part that's, that we're going to prepare for as we get ready to stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. It is such an interesting chapter because we're going to get to the end of our reading and you're going to see one of the most profound verses in the Bible when it comes to the Christmas story. And we see it on Christmas cards. But in context, this is an intense passage of scripture that'll blow your mind. So let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We'll pick up at verse one, chapter seven. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Bekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. So they're just, they're fearful and they're bending with every whisper of the pending doom of these forces coming down on them. The people are scared and Ahaz is scared. Verse three, at this moment, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria, Ephraim, and the sons of Ramalia have plotted evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. But thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, so will not be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. And Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And then he said, Hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. <coughs> Emmanuel, right? Beautiful verse, tragic chapter. Let's pray. Lord, please lead us into all truth as we examine the life of Ahaz as we see this messianic prophecy of a virgin that will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, how all of this transpired at this critical juncture in the life of Judah. 
that you would give such a profound messianic prophecy to this man, a man who didn't even want a sign, even though you gave him a blank check. You said that you could ask of the depth or the height above and, and just tell me what you want. I'll give you a sign to comfort your heart. And he just said, I will not ask, nor will I test you, Lord. But you gave him a sign anyways, that the virgin, the virgin would conceive and bear a son and his name would be called Emmanuel. So Lord, as we examine this, we thank you that your word is living and breathing, sharper than any two-edged sword. It'll divide the thoughts and the intents of our heart. And we're here today, Lord, that you would minister to us, change us, challenge us, and bless us. And so, Lord, we commit our lives to you afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have a seat. Well, to give you a fair warning, it's going to be uh, an interesting, or I should say somewhat intense study this morning. But it's one I pray will bring you great comfort. Ahaz, who is the grandson of Uzziah that we studied last week, Uzziah, a good man, reigned for 52 years. Jotham was a co-regent with his father when he had struggled and his dad went through leprosy and Jotham compromised a bit. By the time Ahaz came along, the compromise was embedded and Ahaz just started going off the deep end. And as he's seeing these imposing forces coming down on, on Jerusalem and upon the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, Ahaz is trying to figure out some sort of worldly solution and he, he tries to side with the Assyrians against the northern kingdom and against Syria itself and he's trying to figure out a solution. He knows the siege is going to happen and as they're, they're, they're bearing down on Jerusalem, uh, Ahaz goes and he goes to check uh, the, the pools and, uh, and as he goes to this aqueduct of the upper pool, he goes there for the simple purpose of making sure that they have a water source for when the siege occurs. And some of you have been to, to Israel with us. Some of us have visited Jerusalem. There's a wall around the city. And when you're under a siege, you, you need to make sure you have two things, food and water. And so he was going to check the upper pool to make sure how long they would have and the water that they would have available to them if the siege were to occur with the northern kingdom and with Syria. And while he's up there inspecting this and trying to figure it all out, and he's trying to make political connections with the Assyrians and trying to figure all of this out as he has desecrated the temples throughout all the southern kingdom, as he has offered two of his sons in sacrifice to Molech, uh, this, this vile god, uh, he's, he's just trying to finagle and figure out a solution. Even though he is familiar with the things of God, even though he comes from a godly heritage, he knows these truths, he knows there's a God in Israel, but he has compromised himself so far that he's watching the kingdom that he oversees getting ready to implode and be besieged by the Syrians in the northern kingdom. And while he's up at this upper pool of this aqueduct, it's there that God says to Isaiah, the prophet, he says, go find Ahaz, you and your son, go find Ahaz. And when you get there, I want you to tell him this for me. He says, take heed and be quiet. And basically what he tells Isaiah to tell Ahaz is, hey, listen, shut up. That's a really cool interpretation from the Hebrew. You're, you're, you're trying to figure this out. You're spinning the plates. You're trying to come up with a worldly solution to a spiritual problem. You need to just take heed and pay attention to who's holding the heavens in the span of his hand. It's me, God. Hello. Now be quiet. And first of all, don't be afraid. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. Trust me. When you realize how big I am, your fear will dissipate. Fear not. Don't be faint-hearted. You're ready to melt. You're trying to find out any solution other than calling on me. Call on me. I'll show you great and mighty things you know not of. Don't be afraid. Don't be faint-hearted. Let me tell you who's coming against you. These are two stubs, smoking firebrands, the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, the son of Ramalia, because Syria and Ephraim, the son of Ramalia, plotted evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and trouble it and let us make a gap in the wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tebel. Thus says the Lord God, pay attention to me, Ahaz. As Isaiah's mouth is moving with the voice of God, he says, it shall not stand. Ahaz, listen to me. You're scared to death and all the people are taking your lead and you're being blown in the wind like a tree. Every whisper, every, every, every rumor that you hear is causing you to go this way and go that way. You're panicking, you're faint-hearted, you're full of fear. Stop, be quiet. Take inventory and realize that you have no ability to defend yourself against this imposing enemy. You need to return to the God of your youth. You need to 
reestablish your faith in me. I want to give you a word, Ahaz, as Isaiah speaks. God says through Isaiah, Ahaz, I want you to hear this word. These two imposing forces, what they want to do to you and what they're saying they're going to do to you, it shall not stand. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It shall not stand. No weapon fashioned against you, no weapon formed against you will stand. This shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. I'm not going to let it come to pass. Now, does that bring you comfort? You're going through a need right now. You're going through a trouble. You're going through trying times. God says, I'll meet your needs in the riches of Christ, exceedingly abundantly beyond anything you could ask or imagine. Are you calm now? Do you feel better? Are you still worrying? Does God's word have any bearing in your life? I remember the story of Chuck Smith when they had no money left and they couldn't make the bills. And he had dues that he had to pay to the union when he was working for Alpha Beta Supermarkets and he was going to give up the ministry and go full-time into management. And the phone rings. His friend says, I'm sending you $450, which was $27 above the amount he needed that he had told the Lord he needed. He was so overjoyed, he began to dance with his wife in the kitchen, dance with Kay and thank God for providing As he went back to his office to just contemplate on God's faithfulness, God said, why did you take Kay and dance around the kitchen? He said, Lord, because of the phone call. My friend's sending $450. That's why. Well, how do you know he's going to send it, Chuck? Because he's my dearest friend. And God spoke to Chuck's heart and he said, why weren't you dancing earlier when I gave you my word? It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. Do you trust the Lord? Do you believe that he works all things together for good with those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Do you believe? Do you believe? Or is it just an exercise in futility? God's given you his word. Are you afraid? Are you faint-hearted? Are you ready to quit? Is Is the enemy pressing in? Can you rest upon his word that no weapon fashioned against you will stand? I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor their children begging bread. Can you calm down? Can you relax? With the fear of your wayward child or the imposing observations of your doctor? Can you just calm down? It shall not come to pass. It shall not stand. But the Lord says to Ahaz through the mouth of Isaiah, he says, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Ahaz, you need to trust me. This is what faith is. Faith that isn't tested isn't a faith worth having. You see, God takes you through the fiery furnace that you trust trust him. When you trust him, you're stronger in the next event that your life faces. But if you don't, if you don't believe, then you will not be established. Your faith will wash away like the sands of the sea. God wants to build a firm foundation where you take him at his word, a word that you can stand upon. It's the rock of our salvation. If you don't believe, it shall not be established, Ahaz. Listen to me. I've given you my word. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And then he said something to Ahaz, which is fascinating to me. This jumped out at me, and it was like a neon light. I pray it ministers to you like it did to me. God said to Ahaz through the mouth of Isaiah, he said, ask a sign for yourself. If I were to bring up here, and a lot of you have heard me speak of this man, his name is Dan Wilkes. He's worth billions of dollars. Dan comes up and he and his wife, Stacy, and they say to you, they pick you out of the audience. They say to you, as they lift out their checkbook and they write their name on it, And they put your name in the pay to and they rip it off and they say to you, fill in the amount. Fill it in. Some of you guys are going, are they coming? (laughs) They'll be here for the opening. They won't be bringing their checkbook. But imagine if they did. Fill in the blank. Imagine the God of the universe who holds the heavens in the span of his hand saying to you, ask for a sign. Anything you want from the Lord your God, ask either in the depth or in the heights above. 
You want me to have the sun come out at night and the moon come out in the day? You want me to make the North Pole tropical? You want the fleece to be wet and the ground dry or the ground wet and the fleece dry? What do you want? Tell me what you want. Name your price. Lay it out. Whatever sign you want, I'll give it to you. Any sign you want. As long as that sign is going to establish in your heart the truth of my word that it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. So you can calm down. What do you need? And what blows my mind is Ahaz's response. He says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. In the initial reading, you think, what a man of faith. How fascinating. What an amazing guy. To the contrary, he's anything but. There's a reason why he said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. His entire life was lived testing the Lord. You can read about it in these passages of scripture. If you wanted to take time, I'll print that for you. But these are the times where he's mentioned in the scripture. And the fascinating thing about Ahaz is he's not a good guy. He's under the influence of the Assyrian expansion. He's called on Assyria to attack Israel and Damascus. His attack led to the destruction of Damascus. Ahaz was influenced by the Assyrian Avodah Zarah and even brought his own son to Molech. Not just son, but sons. That's a misprint. They brought sacrifices to Avodah Zarah through the land of Judah and he traveled to Damascus to meet with Tiglah Pilsner. It's a beer company. I'm kidding. <laughs> While there he saw an Assyrian altar and built a copy of an Assyrian altar in the Beis Hamadadash. Let me explain it to you. He has been so influenced by the Assyrians trying to appease them politically to, uh, to fend off Syria and the Northern Kingdom that he's done everything he can to make the, the travels of these foreigners, the Assyrians, into the land of Judah, God's territory, so acceptable that he set up temples for Molech. He shut down the temples of, of, of God and he's, he's began to embrace pagan worship and to convince the Assyrians he's so committed to, to appeasing them. He takes two of his sons and sacrifices them on the altar of Molech. Let me tell you about Molech. You want to talk about testing God. Really? I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. He's already done it. This is sacrificing to Molech. It looks kind of weird, but let me show you what this picture depicts. This is Molech. It's this incredible beast. It's got a, an animal head of a bull and these hands coming down, opening up. And I, I can find better pictures, but underneath it is this scorching hot flame that takes the hands and makes them molten red hot. And you take your child and you place your child on those molten burning hands and it burns your child in front of all the people so you can sacrifice your child to Molech for the sake of financial prosperity. That is Ahaz. You want to test the Lord? He's done it. That's what blows me away about this. God says, I'll give you a sign. Stop for a minute. If I was God, first of all, I would say it is going to come to pass and it will stand. We're going to wipe you off the face of the earth, you lousy scumbag. And I'm not giving you a sign. I'm going to squish you like a bug. But God says, no, I'm going to have mercy on you. You're my people. And I know in you dwells the presence of the Lord. I know you know me. You've wandered. You're far away from the things that bless me. And I want to bring you back. Ask me for a sign. What do you need? What do you need to calm you down and bring you back? Tell me. You, you've been dabbling in the darkest realms of the world. You've sacrificed your two children. You've shut down my temples. You've wandered far away from me, but you're still in the lineage of the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. Yes, Ahaz's name is there. His name echoes in the halls of heaven for those of you who are judgmental. A man who sacrificed his own children is in the lineage of Jesus. How can this be? Because God is merciful and gracious, patient and long-suffering, wanting that none would perish, but that all would be saved. He takes this remnant and he speaks to them. 
Even when Molech contends for your soul, Molech, if you just see this Strong's Hebrew Dictionary depiction, chief deity of the Ammonites, Molech, a primitive root, you see this, it means to reign, to ascend to the throne. Really what's happening is you have a pagan god ascending to the throne of the living God. That an entire culture, an entire culture has moved away from worshiping the one true God to embrace their sin and cause their sin to be a God. Their sin to be a God? Yeah. You see... Who are the modern Moleks of today? We worship Molech today. The Moleks of human rights, population control, women's health, reproductive health, sexual pleasures of sin. You see, Molech is this picture of destroying our children. Molech worship was practiced by the Ammonites and the Canaanites who revered Molech as a protecting father figure. Images of Molech were made of bronze And their outstretched arms were heated red hot. Living children were then placed into the idol's hands and died there or were rolled into a fire pit below. Some sources indicate a child might also be passed through the fire prior to the actual sacrifice in order to purify or baptize the child. Molech worship occurred in the Hinnon Valley near Jerusalem. And we've been there for those of us who've traveled. And this is what you see that because of Molech, the valley became associated with the idea of Tophet or Gehenna or hell. It's where they'd roll all the carcasses. They called that hell. You can see that in Isaiah 30, Jeremiah 19, and also Mark chapter 9. We killed our own children. God said in Leviticus chapter 20, say to the Israelites, any Israelite or any foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Molech is to be put to death. The members of the community are to stone him. I myself will set my face against him and will cut him off from his people For by sacrificing his children to Molech, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. If the members of the community close their eyes when that man sacrifices one of his children to Molech, and if they fail to put him to death, I myself will set my face against him and his family and will cut them off from the people together with all who follow him and prostituting themselves to Molech. This policy of Ahaz ended up affecting Judah the most. These foreign shrines became places of idol worship that continued The kings would get worse and worse and worse, even beyond Ahaz. I like what one author says. He says, more than likely, this was done in order to be welcoming of foreigners traveling through the land, and more welcoming a nation is the more money it generates through tourism and other such things. Ahaz visited Damascus, modern-day Syria, admired the altars, and he set them up in his own nation. He instructed his high priest to design a duplicate altar, the ones that he had seen in Damascus. He removed the canopy and the Shabbat in the temple, among other things. He was a vile man. He challenged God's authority to appease the Assyrians. We think, what an awful man. What an awful man. Why would God want anything to do with him? Uh, Don't be so quick to judge. California leads a nation in abortion. Abortion? How can you... What is the connection there? Well, everyone in the room, everyone in the room has been affected by abortion. Everyone. I have. We're a nation that has embraced it. We've dismissed it. We've sterilized it. We've distanced ourselves from it. We don't want to talk about it. Don't bring it up in a church because people will leave, and I'm sure you will. But I'm not interested in whether you stay or go. I, I, I love having you here. I don't want to have you go. Please understand that. But, but that, that doesn't have any bearing on what I'm called to do as a pastor. We, we have to come to terms with this as Ahaz did. And if you struggle, then ask God for a sign. He'll give you one. He'll give you one. He gave me a sign. I want to, I'll share with you that sign momentarily, but just to set the tone, I found one of the most logical, non-bombastic, videos describing the moral 
issue of abortion. It's five minutes long. I would encourage you to pay attention. Let's talk about one of the most emotionally charged subjects there is, abortion, but in an unemotional way. Also, let's not touch on the question that most preoccupies discussion of the subject, whether abortion should be legal or illegal. The only question here is the moral one. Is ending the life of a human fetus moral? Let's begin with this question. Does the human fetus have any value and any rights? Now, it's a scientific fact that a human fetus is human life. Those who argue that the human fetus has no rights say that a fetus is not a person. But even if you believe that, it doesn't mean the fetus has no intrinsic value or no rights. There are many living beings that are not persons that have both value and rights. Dogs and other animals, for example. And that's moral argument number one. A living being doesn't have to be a person in order to have intrinsic moral value and rights. When challenged with this argument, people usually change the subject to the rights of the mother, meaning the right of a mother to end her fetus's life under any circumstance for any reason and at any time in her pregnancy. Is that moral? It is only if we believe that the human fetus has no intrinsic worth. But in most cases, nearly everyone believes that the human fetus has essentially infinite worth and an almost absolute right to live. When? When a pregnant woman wants to give birth. Then society and its laws regard the fetus as so valuable that if someone were to kill that fetus, that person could be prosecuted for homicide. Only if a pregnant woman doesn't want to give birth do many people regard the fetus as worthless. Now, does that make sense? It doesn't seem to. Either a human fetus has worth, or it doesn't. And this is moral argument number two. On what moral grounds does the mother alone decide a fetus's worth? We certainly don't do that with regard to a newborn child. It is society, not the mother or the father that determines whether a newborn child has worth and a right to live. So the question is, why should that be different before the human being is born? Why does one person, a mother, get to determine whether that being has any right to live? People respond by saying that a woman has the right to control her body. Now that is entirely correct. The problem here, however, is that the fetus is not her body. It is in her body. It is a separate body. And that's moral argument number three. No one ever asks a pregnant woman, how's your body? When asking about the fetus, people ask, how's the baby? Moral argument number four. Virtually everyone agrees that the moment the baby comes out of the womb, killing the baby is murder. But deliberately killing it a few months before birth is considered no more morally problematic than extracting a tooth. How does that make sense? And finally, moral argument number five. Aren't there instances in which just about everyone, even among those who are pro-choice, would acknowledge that an abortion might not be moral? For example, would it be moral to abort a female fetus? solely because the mother prefers boys to girls, as has happened millions of times in China and elsewhere? And one more example. Let's say science develops a method of determining whether a child in the womb is gay or straight. Would it be moral to kill a gay fetus because the mother didn't want a gay child? People may offer practical reasons not to criminalize all abortions, People may differ about when personhood begins and about the morality of abortion after rape or incest. But with regard to the vast majority of abortions, those of healthy women aborting a healthy fetus, let's be clear. Most of these abortions 
just aren't moral. Good societies can survive people doing immoral things. But a good society cannot survive if it calls immoral things moral. I'm Dennis Prager. In the last service, uh, Bishop Huggins was here. Uh, Fred Kimbangaya is with us. It's fascinating to me that in the United States of America, we elevate Margaret Sanger. We give the Maggie Awards. Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist who wanted to destroy the inferior races. I didn't make it up. You can Google it. And Google still hasn't erased that. It's kept it there. The black population in America is 13%. 36% of all abortions in America are on black children. Most Planned Parenthoods exist in the inner cities. It's morally repugnant. We say, well, it's not a human being. Why? It's too small. So a smaller person is less valuable than a larger person? It's its level of development. It's not fully developed. So an adolescent is less valuable than a fully grown adult? Well, it's its, it's, its environment. So I'm less valuable here behind this wooden stand than I am at home? The one argument they have is its degree of dependency. It's dependent on the mother to live. But my response would be, if anyone's on insulin or oxygen in the room, are you less valuable than I am? I'm not dependent on those things. You can't dismiss the humanness that this is a life. It can be nothing else but a human baby. Now, for us to dismiss it because it requires investment. And the church doesn't want to deal with that. It's, it's sticky. I'm going to lose folks on this Sunday service. I know I will. But the reality is this is life. And God said, do you want to take me at my word? Look, we all have our hands filthy. We've all been affected by it. But the question is, do you want a sign? I'm ready. I'm ready to forgive you. It won't come to pass. I'm not going to judge you, but you need to agree with me. Though your sins were scarlet, I washed them as white as snow. Come, let us reason together. What on that didn't make sense? What didn't make sense? But the church today doesn't want to address it because we're so afraid of the Syrians and the Northern Kingdom. We got to keep butts in the seats. We got to keep babies alive. You know, God gave me a sign. Some of you have heard it. It was one of the most profound experiences I've ever had with the Lord. He could have opened the heavens and had angels sing, and it would have paled in comparison to the sign he gave me. But before I share that with you, I want to tell you what God thinks of babies. Psalm 127, behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. For you were formed in your inward parts. You were woven together in your mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it very well. Psalm 139. The Bible says that children are a blessing from the Lord. Blessed is a man whose quiver is full. You know what I love about that man? He loves children. And they're not his own. But God's given him a love for those children. He didn't have two Ugandan shillings to rub together. Now he's got over 326. 36, see? He knows everyone by name. Tim Maddox is here because he came and left the mission field to love on his daughter who's struggling. And his wife, Darlene's coming back. And this whole church and the church in Paphos, we stopped everything to go love on that girl. We're a culture that believes in life. The church needs to be a culture that believes in life and defends it. 
but we try to come up with some sort of a solution to appease the Assyrians. We let this misery exist within the borders of God's kingdom. Because we're so fearful of the northern kingdom and the Syrians that we'll appease the Assyrians and play by their rules and we all have gotten our hands dirty. The church doesn't want to talk about dirty stuff. But God says, it's not going to stand. You don't have to be afraid. Take me at my word. I love babies. The safest place in a church should be a mother's womb. And in the, in the nation in which that church resides should be a place where we defend the life of that little one. This will not come to pass, God says. Take me at my word. Trust me. Don't just teach the easy passages. Don't appease the masses and let the Assyrians in. Teach my word. If you will not believe, it will not be established. The church will have no foundation. We're going to be a subculture. The Lord gave me a sign early on. I was a young believer. I'd been led to the Lord and discipled by a college minister. Wonderful man, a farmer in the San Joaquin Valley, married with three kids. He took me through the whole navigator study, and it was there that God took a hold of my heart. I was so young in the faith, I took everything and just lived it. You remember that time in your Christian walk? I got a job, graduated, went away to work, and there I started to appease the Assyrians. My life was one of compromise. I, I came back to the San Joaquin Valley, returned to that college group. When I did, he was ministering. There was a new girl there that I hadn't met before, and we started dating. And then we started sleeping together. I was convicted by it. She was. I wanted to return to that, that faith that I knew as a new Christian. And so did she. We repented pressed into the Lord. She came to me later and she said, I'm pregnant. I want to do right by the Lord. So I went and told the senior pastor and I went and hardest thing I ever had to do was tell the college pastor who discipled me. I told him. He was strangely quiet and distant. I knew I'd hurt him. The pastor said you should get married and so we set a wedding date. And I went to go tell my parents. My parents were very prejudiced. My brother had married a Guatemalan woman and, and my, the, the girl that I was engaged to was Hispanic. I was the last great white hope. <laughs> I showed up at my parents' house and sat down. It was cocktail hour. They were wondering why I was there. I just came out with it. I was scared to death. And I said, Mom, Dad, um, my girlfriend's pregnant. We're going to get married. My mom literally screamed. My, my father, Navy captain, head shaking. He said, Louise, calm down. He said, Robert, I knew I was in trouble there. Robert, you don't need to ruin your life. You've got a future ahead of you. You've got a good career. I'm sure she's a nice girl, but the last thing you need is to be raising a child. Just have her get an abortion and you can go on with your life. I said, Dad, I can't do that. It's against everything I believe. My dad said, son, neither my father nor my mother were believers. My father said, son, look where your beliefs have gotten you so far. I'll tell you, the Syrians in the northern kingdom were pressing in. And I was scared. I had lived under the discipline of that man my whole life. He was not one to be trifled with. And at that moment, I knew God said, take me at my word. And I looked at my mom and my dad and I said, Dad... I got blood on my hands, that's true. I'm guilty. But I can't follow up one mistake with another one. This, this isn't God's fault, it's my fault. My dad looked at me. He said, let me make something clear to you. 
you marry that woman and you give birth to that baby, you will never step foot in this house again. They were at the gate. Everything I loved, I couldn't finagle my way out of this. I couldn't figure out a siege or the upper pool or water, uh, the Syrians, the northern kingdom. They were frightening The Assyrians were saying, just sacrifice the baby. It'll be all right. There'll be prosperity. You'll have a future. You'll have your family. I needed a sign. God gave me his word. It's more profound than a sign. It's a baby. It's a baby. I said, Mom, Dad, I love you, and I'm going to miss you. And I walked out, and they were true to their word. No phone calls, nothing. I was a penny looking for change. I had a friend for about five, six years, would call me on my birthday. Most amazing young lady I'd ever known. Every time I saw her, she made me smile. I always thought of her. Whenever I thought about marrying someone, I'd think of her. But here I was engaged, and sure enough, she calls me on my birthday to wish me a happy birthday. It was Michelle, my wife. And I told her, I said, I'm, girlfriend's pregnant, I'm engaged, I'm going to get married. I could hear the disappointment in her voice. And Well, shortly after that, about two months before the wedding, my fiance asked me to pull the car over. We were driving and she takes off her engagement ring. She puts it up on the dashboard. She says, I have to tell you something. I said, what? What else could go wrong? And she said, I slept with Steve. Now, Steve was the guy, the college pastor, discipled me and married and three kids. You talk about a siege, a siege on your faith. And I said, well... A marriage isn't going to be built on a lie, and it would have been nice if you told me that before I met with my folks, but I'll take care of the baby, but we're not getting married. And now I didn't even have a a fiancé. Michelle and I started talking, and I love this. It was out of the London Times, a definition of a friend is when the whole world goes out, they come in, and that was Michelle. And I was thinking, why do you want anything to do with me? You're going to be raising somebody else's kid. I'm damaged goods. I got blood on my hands. She was such a good friend. We waited till the baby was born because back then you couldn't do any other tests and we didn't want to endanger the baby. So the baby was born. We took a blood test. It ended up being his. I didn't believe it. He didn't believe it. His wife didn't believe it. She didn't believe it. So we took another blood test, conclusively his. And it was right after that, I was like, I am marrying Michelle. And I, I said, I, you know, it was such a romantic proposal. I said, look, if you're not doing anything for the next 60 or 70 years, hey. And, uh, no. But after I'd asked for her hand in marriage, I called my mom, who I hadn't spoken to, and I said, and she goes, why are you calling? And I said, well, we're, I'm getting married. She said, I thought you already were married. And I said, no. She goes, who are you marrying this time? Oh, okay, like I've already been. And I said, well, her, her, her name is Metarese Coletti, but she goes by Michelle. My mother goes, well, I know Metarese. I go, you do? I'd never heard the name other than Michelle's. She goes, I know Metarese Fowler. I go, well, that's Michelle's grandmother. My mother on the other end of the phone says, you're marrying Admiral Richard Fowler's granddaughter? There is a hope, you know. I said, yes. She says, Rob, do you know that Med Fowler, Michelle's grandmother, was at your baby shower? I said, no. No, I didn't know that. And the wedding came and lovely and first pregnancy, Michelle... We lost the baby. Michelle almost died. Then Molly was born. Then Kelly. And then another miscarriage. Then Daniel. Then Michael. And then God gave us a fifth child, which was Michelle's largest baby and longest delivery. Natasha, 12 years of age, over 100 pounds when we adopted her. <laughs> and I look, at, I look back. My life's been established. I, I was sitting right there yesterday at the court of honor. And I just was choked up the whole time thinking, gosh, Lord, look at those fine young men getting their Eagle Scouts. That's my boy. 
How did you do that? How'd you do that, Lord? Just so amazed at the handiwork of the Lord. You want to see a sign. My, my mother was dying of lung cancer in 2010, I think. I walked into her room and she said, Rob, I have to tell you something. I said, what's that, Mom? She said, do you remember when I told you that Med was at your baby shower with your godmother, Lois Early, Rear Admiral Early's wife, my godfather? I said, yeah. She said, I didn't tell you the whole story. And my mom, because of me walking out and the marriage to Michelle and me going into the ministry, my mom had confessed to having had two abortions and she came to Christ and, and my dad came to Christ before he died. And, but at this moment in the hospital, my mom says, uh, remember when I told you that, that Michelle's grandmother was at your baby shower? I said, yes. Yeah. She said, I didn't tell you the whole story. I said, what's that? And she said, 1963, I was pregnant with you in Coronado and, and your father was on a Westpac cruise and we didn't want to keep you. We didn't want to have any more kids. And um, I, I told, I was told by your father to figure out a way to terminate the pregnancy. So I confided in your godmother, who wasn't your godmother at the time, but I confided in Lois Early, your father's commanding officer's wife, where one would obtain an abortion in San Diego in 1963 because she was childless and my mother assumed she was childless by choice to further her husband's career. And Lois said to my mother, Louise, let me get back to you. I'll investigate that. Great confidentiality. Well, she went and got connected with her best friend, Med Fowler, Michelle's grandmother, and the two of them put on a baby shower and saved my life. I, yeah. Michelle and I got to witness um, Med's reaffirmation of faith, and I got to lead Lois to the Lord, and it was... So profound, my mom and dad being established in Christ that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Steve, the college pastor, was reconnected with his wife. The young girl that was born is a missionary today. My ex-fiance, she is walking with the Lord. Look, we all know who Molech is and we've all dealt with him. We're all dirty. You want a sign? See, here's the problem. You don't want a sign. Because if you get a sign, you got to be faithful. And it requires that you stand up here behind this wooden box or anywhere else, and you, you contend for the unborn. And people walk out, and churches look at you like you're wasting your time. And you're going to be on, on the backside of culture. And it's not popular. Trust me, you don't want a sign. Because if you get a sign, you are sealed in faith. But the joy of it is, your life is established. I got a good life. I got beautiful kids. They all walk with the Lord. My wife loves Jesus. My parents are in heaven. And Molech doesn't live in my kingdom anymore. I'll close with this. A lot of us have blood on our hands. All of us do. I'm not here to condemn. Look, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He can take the stain of Molech off our hands if we allow the blood of Christ to wash us as white as snow. Though our sins are scarlet, come, let us reason together. What part of the video didn't make sense? We can play it again. Hebrews 9, 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's there now for there, there's there there's there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. You're saying to yourself, God can't forgive me for what I've done. Just look. That's his word. Just look at his word. There's now therefore no condemnation. There's actually in the original it's a period. Boom. There's now therefore no condemnation. 
Matthew, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Hey, you're trying to finagle a solution to the Syrians in the northern kingdom. You're in the upper pool. You're exhausted. You're tired. You have played every game the Assyrians ask you. Is enough enough? Come to me if you're burdened and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. And this is what blows me away, that we use this next verse in every Christmas card imaginable. And it comes in the context of the story of Ahaz, that God says to him, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Even though you don't want one, I'm gonna give you one anyways. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. A little baby, the first sound of God on the face of the earth was the cries of a baby to tell Molech, you're done. And to tell Ahaz, I've forgiven you. It was Pilate who said to Jesus when he was bound, are you a king? Jesus said, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. The truth is, it's a baby. The truth is, Molech is vile. And the truth is, God came that we might have life and life more abundant. You hear his voice? Pilate didn't. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But remember this. She shall bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. God gave you a sign. That sign is that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Virgin means Alma. Word Alma Mater. Your virgin mother, it's, it's this idea of the love for your university or your school. Alma is virgin. It's a sign, it's a messianic prophecy to a man who had blood on his hands. And God said, all of the things you're afraid of will not stand. All the things that you're concerned about will not come to pass. But you've got to take me at my word. Otherwise, it won't be established. And you want a sign, I'll give you one. I don't want a sign. I'm going to give you one anyways. Here's my boy who came to walk the earth to die in your place, that his body would be broken, his blood would be shed for the remission of your sins, that you'd be forgiven of all that you have on your hands, that he would say, let us reason together. Hear my voice, it's true. Though your sins are as scarlet, I'll wash them as white as snow and you'll be a new creature in Christ, forgetting what is behind, striving for what is ahead, that I'll take that mess and I will establish it and you will look back and say, God, what a family you've given me. You want a sign? God gave you his son and he gave you his word and the two are the same. And we are his children and we walk in the light as he is in the light and we walk in the truth and we 